Welcome to the Where Does It Come From podcast. We all have more and more stuff in our lives and we're beginning to realise that the making, using and disposal of these items can cause harm to those who made them, the planet and even ourselves. I'm Jo Salter, your podcast host, and I'll be talking with some amazing people who've made it their life's work to do something about this creating businesses, campaigning, writing books, and much more to help us understand and make better choices. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Where Does It Come From podcast. Today, I've got with me Sean Conway Wood. Hello, Sean. Hi, Joe. And we're going to be talking about the important question, when does marketing turn into greenwashing? So first of all, I'll let Sean tell you a little bit about herself. She's got an amazing background. Off you go, Sean. Thanks, Joe. Well, it's great to be here and I love your new podcast. This is all very exciting. Um, I'm Sean and I'm the founder of Ethical Hour. My background is in marketing, funnily enough, as that's the topic for today. Um, I started off in the corporate marketing world um, kind of by accident, really. I, uh, long story short, was working with startup businesses um, on an accelerator program at a university. So I know a lot of us have been through accelerators. Joe, you and I have been on one recently mm-hmm. with NatWest Bank. Um, they're basically programs that are designed to help small businesses start and grow. Um, Some of them are about getting funding, others are about kind of branding, development, product development, all of those kind of things that go into building a business. And the thing that I really loved in that was the branding and the marketing and how do you reach your customers? Um, I didn't have uh, a degree in marketing or anything like that. I'd just done one module of it at university, but that was the thing that I really loved and really kind of got into with the startups. So when that contract came to an end, because that was a fixed term contract, I then went on to go into the corporate marketing world and kind of work my way up um, in that. But along the way, um, alongside that was getting very interested in kind of ethical fashion, um, you know, just living a bit more sustainably, making kind of better choices in my own purchases and things. And um, had an experience when I went out to Cambodia, which was really a light bulb moment around ethical fashion. And kind of long story short, I realized that the label of some trousers that I was wearing that were from a fast fashion retailer said made in Cambodia while I was out there. And I'd kind of met artisans making fabric and doing silk weaving and things. And, and it was just that moment really of, uh, you know, your brand name, where did these come from? Who made these? And it was the first time I'd ever connected to the fact that a person was making my clothes and what had that person been paid and and things like that. So when I came back, I started to really connect with people online. I met you um, and a lot of other Ethical Hour members um, and started the Twitter chat and we kind of get together every week. Um, and we still do now to discuss these issues and to learn from each other. And uh, what I do now really grew from there, which is kind of turning my attention to ethical marketing because along that journey, I just realized that, you know, we're being sold all this stuff sustainable or not um, through manipulative marketing techniques and things that keep us over consuming and actually my role in that as a marketer isn't passive um, it is you know I am involved in that so I decided that I wanted to start working with small ethical brands instead and that's the long roundabout route that I took into self-employment and starting my community and, and working with ethical brands. That's so interesting and yes as you say we met um, I don't know it must be five years ago something like that um which is um, because we both share that passion for sort of ethical living and educating people for me it's more about transparency and yours is about um sort of the marketing side of things but I think it's um it's been really really uh interesting relationship how we've learned from each other over the years um so it's it's very valuable Uh, just all to say for those people who don't know who I am and why I'm even talking to Sean I'm Jo Salter the founder of the ethical business where does it come from which is all about transparency we supply um We work with businesses basically to help them migrate their supply chains for textiles like bags, T-shirts, shirts, um, all sorts of things like that. And we also have a retail arm. So um, you can find us at whereedoesitcomefrom.co.uk. Quick plug. (laughs) And (laughs) Sean has really helped me over the years with um, building up the marketing for the brand because it's one of those things. I'm sure there's lots of us um, who have an idea for 
a brand, especially an ethical brand, um, and we think this is a fabulous idea. And for me, it was I wake, woke up in the night one night and thought, I can't find out who wore, wore my who made the clothes that um, my family are wearing. So I'll set up a business to do that. It'll be really easy. And that bit was hard, but then it's not half as hard as then getting the message out there into the world that you're there, getting customers to buy from you. You know, if you're if you're not a marketeer, as I am certainly definitely not, you don't understand the triggers that you need for people to actually trust you enough to part with their money and buy products from you. And we're lucky enough now to have a, a reasonably large audience. But um you know, these bigger brands, nothing on these bigger brands and, and how much audience they have. So um, that's really interesting background from you. Thank you, Sean. Um, I suppose the question is next is we've noticed that a lot of brands, you and I talk about this a lot, a lot of the larger brands have started marketing their goods um, towards ethical consumers. So why do you think they've started doing that? Well, the market demand is just growing and growing and growing. I mean, you and I both look at the ethical consumer markets report every year, which shows how spend is increasing in different areas. You know, there's loads of different trend reports. We do our own every year as well about the, the trends in sustainability. But basically, because we've had that um, big wave of awareness, you know, we had in fashion, we had the Rana Plaza collapse which led to the true cost documentary and kind of a big wave of the fashion revolution campaign and a lot of activism with that. Um, in the UK, we had Blue Planet 2, which had the same impact for plastics and probably even more widespread than that. Um, you know, we've got campaigners like Greta Thunberg, we've got the climate strikes, um, all of this stuff going on that's really brought the climate conversation into the mainstream media. And the media is such a big influence on the general public and their opinions and their purchasing decisions. So that wave of awareness then kind of moves people on to being interested in that issue and having a desire to change it. And that is the, the IDA model, which is a really fundamental part of marketing, which is awareness, interest and desire, kind of the journey we go on when we're buying. And because now so many people want to live more sustainably, are becoming more conscious of their choices and are going on that journey, I think there was a stat in Forbes last year or the year before that was 77% of people are wanting to be sustainable. And, you know, there's so many of these stats around um, the amount of people that think that brands should be helping them do that, um, that think legislation should be there, which it absolutely should. Um, but people are really starting to make those changes, which means that that's how they're spending their money now. So brands are seeing that as an opportunity to make more money and to, to break into those spaces and to meet consumer demand. But obviously there is a varying scale as to how much they are really committing to that and meeting that demand in a sustainable way and how much they're doing what's called greenwashing which mm. obviously we're going to talk about today yes exactly i mean, I, mean I, I always found it a bit of a chicken and egg thing because i started where does it come from um we started work on it in 2012 and back then there was nothing in the media at all about um the ethics behind things um so fair we talked about fair trade things a lot but even then it was not really a massive huge movement you know and then when you add the environmental things in that was barely considered at all whereas now there's an article in the paper pretty much every day and a lot of influencers um you know people like the Duchess of Suffolk and Emma Watson and people like that wearing um eco things and being proud to talk about the fact that they've got um ethical and eco-friendly clothes on by their other products and you know bamboo toothbrushes all of those kind of things are so much more hitting um, mainstream media which again drives more awareness and drives more consumers towards that as well um, I wonder if you could unpack that Ida thing you just mentioned yeah so this is quite there's loads and loads of marketing theory and what it really boils down to um, is what you touched on earlier those triggers that trigger us to buy marketing is a real mix of kind of science and psychology art creativity and a bit of luck and being in the right place at the right time to maximize those opportunities as well but um the ida model really is kind of one of the fundamental models there's there's a lot of different ones you can look at but it's the one that i like to teach because it just makes a lot of sense in terms of thinking about how we make the decision to buy things so as brands we can really 
use this to, to nurture that relationship with our customers and take them on a journey. We can also use this as activists, as campaigners. You know, it's all about getting people to a point where they're ready to take action. So for us talking about marketing and sales, that action is to check out and buy something. But it might be to sign a petition. It might be to show up at a protest. It might be to write to their MP. There's loads of different ways this can be applied. You know, we can use it in behavior change campaigns to get people to stop littering, that kind of thing. So um, really, there's the, the three stages to it are awareness, interest, desire. And then I like to add on action at the end, because obviously desire doesn't always convert to action. Um, and it, that's really how we go from finding out about an issue or a product or something, uh, a brand that's out there, all the way through to actually having a good relationship and be ready to buy. And there's so much psychology that goes into that. We, um, One of the fundamentals that we need to be aware of um, in terms of this conversation particularly is that we will only buy things that we need. So a brand's job, a marketer's job, an advertiser's job is to convince you along that journey that you need the product that you're going to buy um, and that that product is going to solve a pain point or a problem for you. So this is where manipulative marketing comes in, because obviously we don't need everything that we buy um, and we do make a lot of impulse purchases. So, and we, you know, we spend thousands on impulse purchases a year. So we're obviously falling for this manipulative marketing along the way. Um, and it's really interesting, the psychology that goes into that around how advertisers do manipulate our needs. And if you look at kind of the hierarchy of needs, the Maslow hierarchy that we probably all remember from school around our basic needs being around security, um, you know, warmth, shelter, food, up to our higher needs of a sense of fulfillment, a sense of belonging. You can really start to see in adverts what needs they're playing on, whether that's social acceptance, you know, all your neighbours have got this, so you need it too, that kind of keeping up with Jones's effect, or even playing on our kind of body confidence or lack of it, our self-esteem, things like that. So once you start to tune into this, you can start to analyze the adverts that you're consuming. Um, and the, the same applies with greenwashing and things which we'll get into. Um, but you can become more conscious. You know, we talk about being a conscious consumer. I, I think that actually doesn't start with the things that we buy. I think that has to start with the way we're being sold to. And we have to be conscious about that because that manipulation will make you think that you need something taking you on that journey. So by the time you're ready to buy and you're at that desire and action stage at the bottom of that journey, you're already convinced that you need that product, whether you actually do need it or not. And obviously we all know that the more sustainable choice is to not buy. So if we're going to consume less, we have to become conscious consumers at the beginning of the journey, which is when we're consuming the advertising. That's so interesting, isn't it? I mean, for people listening, we think that we're making a choice, don't we? We think we're going shopping um, and we're choosing the things that we need in our lives, but actually we are being sold to and persuaded that we need things. I mean, it sounds probably very simple from your point of view as a marketer, but from my point of view as a consumer, as well as a brand owner, that's quite horrifying where I thought I had the control, but actually I don't have the control, um, which is, you know, a concern. And what you were saying there does make me think of um, the wonderful True Cost movie that I think was 2016, wasn't it? And a, a real light bulb moment for me was when the psychologist um, pointed out that, a lot of advertising is aimed at people who have got things that are not right in their life. So as you were mentioning, body image issues, um, maybe they haven't been able to afford uh, to buy a house or the house that they wanted, or they wanted a, a car or they've got, um, have, just haven't got enough money for food or something like that. And they aim at them by saying, don't worry, your problems will all be solved with this dress or this next level up phone or, or whatever and you think your problems are going to be solved what, what actually happens is you get the thing home your problems aren't solved it makes you go even lower um, in your mental health and therefore you are an even greater target for them for the next time and the cycle goes on and on and on and you get into debt that's it exactly and we're all susceptible to it there are shocking stats around how many advertising messages you consume in a day and if you were to sit here and think and, and count them up you'd probably say you know maybe I've seen 10 or 20 adverts today but actually it's thousands and thousands of adverts it's constant you know it's on every platform there are so many 
what we call touch points now for advertisers to to get at us and influence us that we're seeing all of this subconsciously and so much advertising and marketing is actually designed to work subconsciously so with shopping it actually releases dopamine which is the happy hormone um makes you know it's the hormone of love it's the hormone that makes us feel good um, and we get a dopamine hit when we go shopping so that's why we get in this consumption cycle but what is interesting is that psychologists have found that actually we get that dopamine hit at the thought of shopping and not actually at the purchase so you will get that dopamine hit at the point where you're adding something to your cart rather than the point where it actually arrives. So that when you start to understand how this works psychologically in our brains and then how that's being manipulated, you can really start to see why we're in this mess of just overconsumption, causing all this waste and pollution and exploitation and everything else. And if you look at how advertisers are manipulating exactly what you said, Joe, points where we're feeling low or insecure about something, I mean, at the moment, we're going through lockdown easing in the UK because obviously we're in COVID times and uh, we're just coming out of lockdown. And so many brands are positioning it as, you know, buy this new car so you can get out and see your family and friends. Buy this new dress because you've got nothing to wear to you know that event that you're going to you can't be seen in the same outfit twice and now you're going to be going to all these social events like literally every product if you put the radio on you listen to the adverts if you look at the adverts in your social media feed they're all playing on lockdown ending which when you think about it will be causing a lot of subconscious anxiety for many of us because you know we've been in lockdown um, there's still a pandemic going on we will be feeling worried about that people may have struggled financially during these times you know there's a lot going on there emotionally but they're playing on it that this will make you feel good about lockdown ending you deserve this treat because you made it through lockdown you you need this new outfit because you're going to go and see people and you want to feel good and look good and you're going to get that dopamine hit from buying this thing until it arrives then you'll be on to the next purchase that that's interesting you said that. I mean you, it was making me think about um, the abandoned cart problem that as a business that we find that a lot of people get the pleasure of putting the item in the cart. So maybe that gives them the pleasure and they don't then follow through and, and buy the item. So maybe they've, they've had their dopamine hit. And the other thing is um, young people in particular, I don't want, I'm not ageist at all, you know, but people who buy a lot of clothes and buy lots of different sizes and then send quite a lot of it back again to the brand and I don't know if you remember a few years back when you and I were on Radio 5 Live we were interviewed weren't we and I remember the interviewer saying to us oh my daughters have um, cars coming up all the time get delivering clothes and then they send most mm. of it back um, so maybe that's an accepted business um way of behaving that loads of things gets get sent back because of the, people get that dopamine hit from buying it but they don't actually want it and they send it back but the problem is as you and I both know a lot of that stock is then destroyed absolutely and what's interesting about that we as humans we experience loss aversion so we when you're making a purchasing decision you are weighing up what you're going to be losing in that purchase which is obviously the money so the brand needs to convince you that it's worth the money and that the, the gain that you're getting from the product is bigger than the loss of the money. Um, but also there is loss aversion when, so when you're physically shopping, um, long distant memory for many of us in lockdown, I'm sure. But um, psychologists have found that if you touch an item, you are much more likely to buy it you build that connection with it and the longer that you carry it around a store the more attached you become to it psychologically and so you then experience loss aversion at the idea of putting it down and not buying it so um there was some research done into shopping carts shopping trolleys like physical ones not the digital ones that we're all used to um that when they are double the size spend in store goes up by 40% because we don't like to push an empty trolley around because that is, uh, you know, triggering us uh, into loss aversion that we haven't got anything and we're missing out. It's our fear of missing out. Um, so we want to fill that trolley and then we push things around. Obviously there's more space to put more stuff in there. And then we push it around the store. The stores are very cleverly designed to keep us in there for a long time. You know, they use techniques that the casinos in Las Vegas use to keep you gambling. It's all so psychological. 
and then you push it around for a long time and then you don't want to lose it so you go and check out and then you're bombarded at the checkout with impulse purchases and your spend goes up and you're not free from that online as well like there's a lot of the the same marketing techniques that have gone into working that out are being applied online to especially places like Amazon that really are working on this overconsumption model um, but the, interestingly with the returns um, that is an accepted business model and they almost want you to do that they encourage you to do that because as much as people are returning lots of clothes and unfortunately it's getting destroyed you know it's not getting resold but that's kept very quiet because we think it's being resold and we think it's guilt-free mm -hmm. to buy and return um, they actually want us to buy in bulk because we're unlikely to go to the effort of returning it because we've paid a very cheap price for this fast fashion it's arrived we've touched it we've felt it we've built that connection to it it actually feels like a loss to send it back even if we don't want it so we tend to keep it and hoard it even if we're not going to wear it and that's why everyone's wardrobes are overflowing with clothes that we don't wear but if you look at big um, retailers so like ASOS for example now have a buy now pay later sort of system where you can buy you can order the clothes not pay for them return what you're not going to buy and then pay for it in 30 days for example and there's you know things like Klarna where you can yeah. buy now pay later and schemes like that so what they're doing with all of these schemes is trying to get us to buy in bulk so a lot of clothes arrive that we think we're going to return and we think we're only going to keep one item but we haven't actually paid for it yet so there's no loss aversion at the point of purchase because all we're doing is adding to our cart getting that dopamine hit buying these clothes they arrive we get that dopamine hit of new stuff arriving because we love novelty we love new psychologically that's really appealing to us um, and then all the loss aversion comes at that point because I've touched it it's mine already I you know I want to keep it I don't want to send it back I don't want the inconvenience of going to the post box going to the post office packaging it up sending it back and also I haven't paid for it yet and that money's going to come out later once I've already forgotten about it so they're very cleverly using our loss aversion and basically prolonging it in the sales process so that it doesn't interrupt your buying decision and you're encouraged to buy more that's interesting um yes very, very interesting that the Klarna and the um, organisations like that, that that basically put off the moment of having to pay or or put it in instalments. Um, I found and I was actually contacted by some of those wanting us to put it on. Where does it come from? Which I found quite laughable. I mean, mm. If you're having an ethical brand, and the, the the salesperson was saying to me, then people are more likely to buy expensive items, um, and because they they can postpone the moment of paying. Whereas I'm very much in the business model of if people want to buy expensive items I want them to think about that consciously make the decision and potentially if they need to save up to do that so that yeah. it becomes a personal investment which is um, not the model that these people are going with at all you know so it's it's very interesting and, and I think the problem is we've talked a lot in the past about behavior change but that's become the norm now hasn't it that people mm. expect that and as you say people don't realize the waste that's coming out of that because we're not told, we're not told that that's the waste. Anyway, we've talked a lot about marketing and I hope that people listening um, are now sort of more aware, and I certainly am, of how much we are being manipulated to, to basically we might as well just go into a shop and shake out our pockets and just hand over our money while we're while we're in there but and we're being manipulated in by a huge number of psychological techniques to spend our money so if you think you're in control and you go shopping think again and perhaps you can spot some of these techniques either online or um, shopping I, it's certainly useful to know about them. I want to move on to talk about greenwashing because we now know that marketing has been around for a really long time. I don't know, forever, probably, I don't know, um, but certainly a really long time. With the uh, more the upcoming green consumer, the growing of the green consumer um, model, what a lot of brands are doing is now trying to make themselves appear more green. And there's a number of different ways that they do that so they can attract these um, more eco um, ethical aware consumers so there's a lot of different different ways of delving into this I mean I look at it very much from the transparency point of view that's probably not a huge surprise but when you're buying something um, or thinking that you need to buy something it's looking at all the different elements all the bits of information about that particular product you're about to buy so what's it made of where did the crop grow if it's made of a crop is it made of plastic how was that turned into a um, fiber for clothing 
who worked on it, what conditions did they work on, all that kind of thing, all the way through to how did that travel to the UK? Did it travel around a lot of different places? Was there huge amounts of carbon used in the processing, in the freight or whatever? What chemicals went into it? There's so many different questions that um, you can delve into about a single product. It's quite gobsmacking really. And most of us don't know that because the, the deeper you delve, the deeper you need to delve really. That's an unfortunate thing. But one thing with greenwashing that um, I'm particularly aware of and I'd love your thoughts on is that brands quite often pick just one of the really detailed things that you could do. So, for example, where what what the fibre is that the thing is made of or um, I don't know, is the is it a, is it being made out of recycled rather than um, virgin polyester or something like that? But they then they delve in on that and all the labels will tell you about that one particular item, but not whether it was in a sweatshop or um, whether it was air freighted to four different countries before it reached the UK. So I'd love to have your thoughts on that. Yeah, so greenwashing is such an interesting area because again, it's so complex and it's so sneaky, but there are some kind of standard practices, if you like, obviously they're standard, don't do this practices, <laughs> ideally, but unfortunately they this. are happening. Um, a, company, a marketing agency uh, in Canada called TerraCycle actually came up with the seven sins of greenwashing. And that's quite a good framework for just identifying some of the, the basic techniques. You know, when that was developed, it wasn't basic. That was kind of the main thing. But greenwashing goes to such a deep level now and has got so sophisticated because consumers are much more aware. But the one you're talking about there, Joe, falls into the sin of the hidden trade-off. So that is where one element of the product will be good or one element of the brand will be good. Um, but it will be they will talk about that to hide other kind of dodgier practices. So actually kind of the inventors of greenwashing, um, probably not a surprise, are the fossil fuel companies and the big oil giants. Um, even the idea of carbon footprints. Um, and individual carbon footprints was actually invented as part of a BP, um, British Petroleum PR campaign. So that was all about pushing responsibility onto the individual so they could carry on with business as usual, obviously making money from very polluting fossil fuels. Um, but they are definitely using this hidden trade-off at the moment. So if you were to go on any of their, you know, Exxon, BP, any of their, um, Twitter feeds or their social media it's all about renewables it's all about natural gas you know they're using a lot of words and images um, BP even kind of shamelessly rebranded and painted all of their petrol stations green like literal greenwashing um, to, to kind of portray this image but the amount of money they're spending on those marketing campaigns is much bigger than the amount that they're actually spending on making changes in their supply chains. And that's the same in fashion. It's the same in um, plastics industries. You know, it's the same across the board, really, when there is greenwashing occurring. Um, but the, the reason it's so bad with them is they're kind of putting this uh, good image out there of, of how much they're investing in renewables and what they're doing. But actually behind the scenes, they are lobbying against renewables um, and against legislation that would regulate them more they are you know they're using the word natural gas as if that makes it good natural we were talking just before we started recording about the word natural being yeah. misused like natural gas is still uh you know not great <laughs> and the processes that are involved are very polluting and every everything else um so it's that kind of hidden trade-off of we're going to show you one thing over here because something else bad is going on over here and like you said in fashion that can be that you know a product is made from recycled materials or organic cotton but it's made in a sweatshop as a result of exploitation so that's that hidden trade-off um, there and I think what people don't realize is that a lot of these fast fashion brands have their conscious collections where they are kind of you know making moves into sustainable materials maybe they're doing take-back schemes and they're starting to embed some circular economy principles in there but they're still those clothes are still made in the same factories there's still not the transparency in those supply chains and a big problem with that in fashion in particular is the mass production so even if you make it from organic cotton, if you are making it at that rate of 52 collections a year and hundreds of thousands of garments, you know, a month, a week, whatever, that is just not sustainable. And then you're using all of these manipulative marketing techniques to get people to overconsume. 
then you just can't call yourself planet friendly. And what is happening is that by doing that, because they already have, you touched on this earlier when you were talking about being a small brand and not having the audience size, the big giants have the brand awareness. They have the brand, what's called brand recall. So when you think of a particular product or you think of a particular need, you automatically think of a certain brand. So if you think about needing to put petrol into your car, to come back to that example, you will think of a certain petrol station, the one that you go to regularly. If you think about needing to go and buy food, you will think of the supermarket chain that you use. So there's that brand recall of the brands that you're familiar with and the fast fashion giants will have that brand recall of if you need new clothes, which shop do you go to? It's one that you're aware of. And because they've built that recall and they are in your head effectively, you trust them. So when they say this is sustainable, this is eco-friendly, we are becoming a sustainable brand, um, you believe them. If you don't know kind of more about the industry, more about supply chains, more about what's going on. So they are actually watering down the meaning of sustainability because we're not having, you know, we're having it in, the, in our little echo chamber that we're in here and, and with your listeners and everybody else. But the mass market is not having the conversation that needs to be had about actually we need to consume less if we're going to be sustainable we can make as much from organic cotton as we want but if we're not building it to last if we're not breaking that manipulative marketing that is keeping us over consuming you know if we're not stopping ordering 10 items and returning nine of them and all of these practices then we're not bringing down our collective carbon footprint we're not creating change we're not reducing waste so we can't call it sustainable we're creatures of habit when it comes down to it aren't we and i think the um the amount of effort to change brand is like changing bank and like changing um, fuel supply and all sorts of things. It's it's a big effort. And mentally, as people, we most people have very busy lives now. And to change from one brand to another, to research from one brand to another, that's almost taken a bit for granted that people won't. They can they can yeah. expect people to stay. And that's why these um, things like go compare and compare the meerkats and everything have come along because they're helping people to move because we just don't want to. We're, we're not keen on moving. We want to, we want to find something that we trust and, and stick with it. So if you are one of these bigger brands, I mean, take for example Marks and Spencers who I've got nothing against whatsoever but they're in the high street it's easy to go there they've got you've got an impression that you're going to get good good quality if you go there and you probably are but to move away from them to a small local brand that you've not really don't know much about you know don't have any background backstory because that's the other thing as a smaller brand you need to prove yourself whereas I don't think the larger brands do in quite the same way because they've built that that subliminal trust stuff I suppose and it is that brand perception that they build so you know you can if you name a brand people will talk about buzzwords so for example Apple are really really good at this you know monopolizing that brand perception there is that perception that it's cool um, you know it's really sleek design even all the way through their packaging and everything it's very much style over substance you know apple products are not necessarily any better you know there's a whole debate there about between iphone users and android but actually on a technical spec level android and windows are very often superior technology superior hardware better machines but actually apple have built that brand reputation about you know being ready out of the box there's a reason why when you get a new iphone it comes out of the box and it's already charged and you don't have to plug it in it's all part of that brand perception that they're creating and that's why there is that fierce loyalty and you will get a bit of rivalry between kind of android and apple users it's all about the brand and if you think about where branding came from again where does it come from branding actually originated as a way of showing ownership so quality seals on um things like wine and spices and things when they yeah and cattle as well you know when they're being traded and they're being transported it was to show origin it was to show where it had come from and it was to show a sense of quality so you know millions if not billions is spent on branding every year to think about what do we want people to think about when they think of our brand and it's so subconscious but that's what creates that you know instant reaction of I need this therefore I'm going to go to that shop Mm. and actually I think I was listening to a, a retail trends session a bit earlier today and they were saying that the latest stats are that 40% of people now start their search for a product on Amazon 
rather than Google. So if you think Google for years has dominated online search, and again, because of the power of branding, has dominated the online search world, but Amazon are now becoming so so much of a monopoly in retail that now it's people's go-to place where they will go and search for a product it's very interesting that isn't it because um again that's that's taking the pain away isn't it i mean we, we talked about this before but people have a they, they believe that they need to have their life as easy as possible because they're so busy so somewhere like amazon um if you're going to an event whenever we actually get to go to events again and you need you believe you need a new outfit a wedding or something like that um it used to be that you would have that designed um you know you'd, you'd have that design in mind maybe for a few months you'd save up you'd, you'd shop around you'd think about where you're going to go and that would almost be part of the pleasure would be um preparing yourself and choosing and getting that right and i was i was interviewed about this the other day and i said i think that's part of the pleasure of it and the interviewer said no because the, the fact Fashion might have changed by the time you get there. You want to have the latest thing. The, the beauty of brands like Amazon is that basically you can order it the week before, even a few days before, and it will arrive in time for your big event and you're, you're guaranteed. But no, it was quite a young girl who was interviewing me and she basically said that would be terrible if you talk, turned up to a wedding as something that was out of date. Yeah, this is the problem, isn't it? And <laughs> Amazon are just, you know, they're one one brand, but they're such a giant and they are the biggest fashion retailer now. They've overtaken Walmart in the US to be the fa- biggest fashion retailer in the US. So, you know, you can't deny the power that they have and the way that is influencing our shopping behaviours. And when you start to dig into the way that Amazon is built, you know, it's all about convenience. You can get same day delivery on some things, depending on where you live in the world, you know, how close you are to a distribution centre and things. But um, in most places now, you can order something. We could order it now and it would be here by kind of 10, 11 o'clock tomorrow Mm. morning. Um, which is terrifying to think about the process involved in that. And, you know, there's all sorts of awful reports about labour exploitation and things going on. Um, But when you look at the site and how it's designed and the app and everything else, it's all so, so cleverly manipulating this psychology um, and all of these different elements, you know, our fear of missing out, our love of convenience, uh, minimizing any loss aversion, all the rest of it. You know, they're, they're very, very good at that and getting mm. us onto subscription models and all the rest of it that just makes it as easy as possible to consume without thinking, because that's ultimately what it comes down to. The less we are thinking and the more our subconscious brain is running the show, the more, um, you know, the more we buy. And that's why so much marketing uses fear based tactics because when we are scared we go into fight flight or freeze response and our kind of reptile primitive brain takes over and starts running the show so most marketing and advertising will be designed to put you into that response and then convince you that the thing that will make you safe is to buy this thing so Mm. it's very very clever and you know being aware of these techniques is one thing but being immune to it when we shop (laughs) is another because you know it does put us into that subconscious state and I think that's why it's so hard to crack this sustainability piece because well number one it's such a complex area so obviously Marks and Spencer as an example that you mentioned earlier are doing a lot with organic cotton and are doing a lot to clean up their supply chains and then there's an argument in the sustainability sector about well you know can any big brand really be sustainable they need to be talking about degrowth they need to be producing less but is it a good thing that they're doing something you know there's that whole debate about is that good or is it not and and how good is it and how much airspace should they have but then there's also this question of um when we think about sustainability it's going to have that brand effect that we are going to think of these brands that are really publicizing their sustainability initiatives whether those initiatives are good or not whether they are sustainable or not they've already got the brand trust they've already got the knowledge and the ability and the creative teams and everything else to be able to apply these psychological techniques to the sustainability message. And they are going to dominate what we think of as sustainable. Um, So, you know, if it is a conscious collection, we are going to think, oh, that must be better because that brand told me so. And I believe them. I'm loyal Mm. to that brand. I think, I think it's an interesting point, isn't it? So if you've got a large brand that's doing something good, um, one of the, positive thoughts out of that is that's good they're doing something really good and there's a very large brand well I can say the name Primark who have done um, 
they, they, they sell huge amounts of, of clothing on the high street and they use brown carrier bags. So I mentioned this to someone the other day and I said, um, it's interesting that they use brown sort of reusable looking. I don't know if they are reusable, but um, sorry, recyclable, but they look sort of good for the environment carrier bags and people walk along with several of these carrier bags and they say well isn't it good that they're actually doing that they might be doing lots of other wrong things but they are doing um some i say wrong is a bit judgmental by that i mean they're doing a lot of overconsumption activities and um sweatshop uh, production but they are doing these they're saving a huge amount of plastic carrier bags from landfill so there is a, an element and the same with uh the H&M type conscious collection, they they might be doing um, a huge amount of production of non or non known about sustainable uh, cotton type clothing, but they they also do have uh, they're using some organic cotton. Isn't that a good thing? So that is an interesting dilemma, I think, for the consumer, for us as customers, because you you're thinking well, it's not as bad as blah. They are better than that. So it's tricky, isn't it? Yeah, and everything is so carefully designed. So the fact that those bags are brown paper will not be an accident. That will be very carefully considered so that when you come out of Primark with 10 of them, you don't <laughs> think that you've done something bad for the planet. You don't think that you've got this huge amount of clothing. You know, the bags feel very light. They look recyclable. They will trigger certain associations in your brain to make you think that that's okay and the same you know if you look at H&M's advertising their conscious collection it's all women in floaty dresses in fields connecting with nature to again make those leaps in your brain that then kind of tell you that things are okay and and good for the planet and things and I think ultimately that's where we have to make the decision as consumers about do we look at it on a product by product basis so if you do still want convenience and low price point and to be able to pick it up on the high street and everything else then okay if you're going to go to H&M it probably is better to buy something from their conscious collection than from the rest of the store there is a side issue with that that a lot of the time their conscious pieces are sold as loss leaders to get you in and to get you to buy more and again the store layout is very carefully planned so that it is you know it's all designed to get you to spend more so it's very unlikely that you will only go into H&M and buy that 10 pound cotton dress the same you as will supermarkets probably come out with more exactly supermarket clothing and we know several brands have started doing organic exactly. cotton um clothing but the price the, the trouble is um and, and i say well done to them for doing that for actually researching and looking into organic clothing but the challenge is nobody else can produce them for that price exactly and we could do a whole separate episode about the techniques <laughs> that supermarkets use to keep you in there and keep you spending i won't yeah. go into that but, no, but that that's on a product level so you know if you're going to buy if you are going to buy that product and you're going to buy it new and you've already been through that kind of hierarchy of needs of do you really need to buy it new then yes for example organic would be a better choice and if you do want that from the high street then these brands that are doing conscious collections are an option um, obviously the the kind of other way of doing it and my personal preference is to do it on a brand level so who who is that brand as a whole what does their whole supply chain look like and even who is their parent company so this is how ethical consumer magazine do their rankings and that's a very good source of information into this because they do a lot of research into um you know, what are the best options? What are the best buys for different things in different categories, including fashion? But they say on their website, they look at the parent company because obviously that's where your money is ultimately going. So if you buy, um, there's a really good uh, kind of example of this that isn't mine. It was um, by a journalist in The Guardian and I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but it's about eggs in the supermarket. So if you go to the supermarket um, and you look at the eggs display, which incidentally will be at the back of the store because everybody goes in because they need eggs, but then they come out with 10 more things because they've made you walk all the way through the store. But you go to the eggs display and you will find that there's organic free range eggs and there's eggs from caged hens that don't have such a good quality of life. You will probably, as an ethical consumer listening to this, you will probably go for the free range eggs um, unless you can't afford it or whatever. You know, people do have their reasons for buying the caged eggs. But no matter which eggs you buy, the supermarket still makes the profit. And that's the problem because we only have so much control. Like the actual responsibility shouldn't be on us to make that decision. It should be 
that they are only allowed to sell free range organic eggs from hens that have had a good quality of life. They shouldn't be able to profit from both and push that responsibility on us. But at the moment, you know, that's that's the other piece. That's why we need legislation. And, Mm. you know, in terms of marketing, we need kind of the advertising standards agencies and people to crack down on this greenwashing and make brands substantiate their claims when they're saying you know, this is ethical and sustainable. Well, what does that mean? Like, how is that ethical and sustainable so that that education piece carries on and so that we can make informed choices? I think education is an absolutely key one and and something I'm absolutely passionate about. I mean, transparency and sharing all the information is so vital. But I think, um, and I and I also totally agree with you about legislation. And I, I came from a place maybe five or six years ago when I thought it could all be done with um, looking at consumer behaviour and culture change. But now I think there's just too much going on um, that's being pushed at us in terms of um, misleading information that it's 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 not fair now to consumers. I think it needs to be there needs to be legislation to stop people doing things that are actually getting close to being untrue, you know, yeah, <laughs> when, it, when it comes it, down exactly. to it. But culture change is a really interesting one. Um, I'm hoping that people listening to this will um make them make make us all think a little bit you know about some of the the choices that we're making and even changing one part of your behavior can trigger you asking questions I think asking questions is one of the key ones you start asking questions of big brands they will change their behavior and uh, as I I think I've I've said before on um, previous sessions if a small brand by doing something in a totally transparent way and sharing a huge amount of information can encourage customers to then go to the big brands and say well they can do that why are you not doing that then that's that's an amazing role to have as a sort of leading brand and one that I hope we're one of the many brands that do do that but culture change is it's a really difficult topic we could probably do a whole other session on that so we won't delve too far far into it now I'm sure I'm not the only one who's listening to this who would love you to delve a bit more into some of the other seven sins of greenwashing if you're happy to yeah so where do we start I mean you can use this as like a little bingo card yeah. go around the shops good idea um, <laughs> another one that really we've touched on there that is really annoying is vagueness so um you know is just saying this is sustainable but not giving that specifics about how is it sustainable so that links into the transparency piece doesn't it so if you're going to claim that this is uh a good example of this is actually the the um supermarkets on their pre-packaged sandwiches are very keen at the moment on putting you know 70 percent less plastic well less than what yeah uh, and what do i do with that plastic and, and where does that go so um that kind of vagueness and again it just appeals to that subconscious uh kind of brain and the other one that links to that is the worshipping of false labels so this is terms like natural um biodegradable is a really good one it's a relatively meaningless term again because there's no regulation around what it actually means if you think about natural um loads and loads of things are natural arsenic is a natural thing but i wouldn't (laughs) want it in my skincare so you know but we are when we see that label natural on some skincare for example products um and we see you know nice leafy packaging we think oh yeah that's good i'll buy that um but it doesn't necessarily mean there's no kind of chemical processing and things involved in that um biodegradable is the other one and compostable are the two kind of really big buzzwords (laughs) at the moment in the plastic space in particular now that we all want to reduce our plastic footprint um compostable the questions you need to be asking are can it go in my home compost because obviously not many of us have access to industrial compost sometimes um they need to be composted with heat that we can't achieve at home Uh, and if your city or town or or you know local community doesn't have that facility and that that isn't part of your waste collection then it's going to end up in landfill and it's not going to break down um biodegradable just means that there's no time limit on that by regulation so technically everything will break down eventually so technically everything is biodegradable obviously for plastics it will break down into microplastic but they are still allowed to call it biodegradable if it will break down so you need to be asking what is the time scale that it will break down and the other for both of them the other crucial thing to ask particularly on things like um face wipes baby wipes uh things like that is has it been landfill tested because often the conditions in landfill are such that things won't break down even if they would break down you know if you were to bury it in the garden for example 
Um, so uh, particularly with food, this is a problem because a lot of food waste doesn't even break down in landfill just because of the conditions there in terms of kind of how tightly packed it is and all sorts that goes into it. So has it been landfill tested? And if so, what is the timeline in it degrading? Um, obviously, we want that to be as short as possible. Um, but those terms are kind of false labels in that they, they're just kind of meaningless unless there is that data to support it and to back it up. And obviously the ideal for compostable is that it would go in your home compost um, and break down. And also that it would break down in landfill conditions because not everyone has a home compost. But it's interesting, isn't it? I I find as a business owner that sometimes you have to use those terms to appeal to customers, but also yeah. for things like SEO. Um, so people don't, for people who don't know, when your search engine, you know, when you type something into a search engine and you get matched up with a website, that is because there's words on that website that, that correspond to that. So you end up using things like sustainable, natural, whatever, because you know that's what customers are going to be um, typing in. And then every now and again, I mean, sustainable is a, a really good one. At the moment, there's a backlash against the word sustainable, and we're all starting to use the word regenerative, which yeah. makes me smile because regenerative has a definite meaning you know but after a while you're going to find everyone's calling everything regenerative so look out for that one (laughs) yeah that's it and these terms do get kind of taken on and and you know green as well and all sorts of taken on yeah exactly so we do have to be really careful so it is I think the more we can learn to spot these tactics that are used then the better really um, I'm just trying to think what other ones are, are good to talk about because we, we could just talk all we day talk about them. these tactics. I think um, made in is a good one, isn't it? So the yeah. moment there's a big push to made in the UK, made in Britain, made in England, whatever um, you want to call it. And I was talking to someone about this this morning because I've always had a, a bit of a shine will go, oh, no, here she goes again. But I always bang on about the fact that, um, you know, cotton products are often called made in the UK when they can't possibly be because we um, don't grow any cotton in the UK. So that's one simple one but I was talking to someone this morning um, who's a textile designer and he was going even further than that is that um, some of the substances that are used for dyes and um, some of the printing um, chemicals and things they all come from all over the place and if, if people genuinely think they make their own clothes or their clothes are made locally there are so many parts of them that are just not yeah definitely and the other good one to look out for is irrelevant So making clay or kind of highlighting eco features um, or good features of products that that are completely irrelevant. So an example of this is um, in the US, by law, baby bottles, plastic bottles have to be BPA free. BPA is a chemical that has been linked to certain types of cancer. Um, So by law, they have to be BPA free, but a lot of baby bottle brands will advertise their products as BPA free as if that's a selling point. But by default, they all have to be BPA free. So that's another one to look out for. And there's also as much as we've got that hidden trade off that we talked about, there's also the kind of lesser of two evils approach where you will use these buzzwords to get people's attention. But because we're in that I'm busy, you're speaking to my subconscious, I'm not really thinking about the the messaging that I'm being given, Um, we're not going to question it. So we're not going to look into that. So um, an example of this, I think in 2008, 2009, the budget airline EasyJet started claiming in all their adverts that they were, you know, this percentage less carbon dioxide emitted than other flights on this route. And the problem with that was the way they were breaking that down per passenger and things, and it ended up Um, they actually got in trouble with the advertising standards agency for misleading people because of the way that they were promoting that and you know it's almost like saying uh, advertising cigarettes as organic because it's organic tobacco like it's still (laughs) going to cause cancer right so it's not it's the lesser of two evils but actually it's not good but we look for words like organic we look for words like green we look for um, at the moment, we're all so hot on net zero, carbon offsetting, yeah. tree planting, everything else. Um, but obviously, they're very complex issues. And, you know, there's, there's issues about the price of carbon, the price that people are paying to offset um, and it not being valued correctly. There's issues with tree planting about are those trees going to reach maturity? Are they promoting biodiversity? Are indigenous people being kicked off land so that trees can be planted on it? You know, all of these things does get so overwhelming when you start thinking about it as a consumer because you have to think about all these things and I think that's where 
we really need that legislation that yeah. regulation so that yeah. the burden of proof isn't on us yeah, um, I think that's so right and in fact there hasn't there been some big brands recently called out for um, legally called out for greenwashing as well and misleading customers which is a, yeah. a, a nice so change H&M, yeah H&M um, were taken to court in Norway and were reprimanded for um, not being clear enough about what sustainable meant in their advertising. So that's the kind of thing that we need. So um, what we can do as consumers, obviously we can have influence in our purchasing decisions, but I think we can have more power beyond our purchasing decisions by pushing this pressure back so when you see greenwashing like learn what those seven sins are and then when you see it report it to the advertising standards agency in the same way that you would um you know write to your local mp about an issue you can write to the advertising standards agency you know in america i think it's the federal trade commission is the equivalent of that whatever the equivalent is that regulates advertising in your country um you can write to them they they answer to us as the public and you can say that this is misleading advertising and here is why and you can quote the seven sins of greenwashing and show which sin they are committing and um you know take it that way and the the more we do that the more we will create that critical mass that will then demand the legislation so that's something that we can all do and the other thing you can do is is start to learn some of these techniques so that when you shop you are a conscious consumer in that you are thinking why do I think that I need this what process have I gone on and what has someone subconsciously done to get me to this point where I'm ready to buy so it's kind of a layer deeper than what a lot of us do of like oh do I really need this um and kind of learning it that way I think that's absolutely vital and I love I love that point I think I really hope it comes about and I'll certainly um be very keen on pushing it myself I mean we need to have legislation because as you say the burden of the proof is currently on us the reason the whole reason that we're even doing this podcast is to try and help people understand all the different um things being thrown at us to make us part with our money and make us believe that companies are being green eco sustainable whatever word you want to do if that burden of proof wasn't on us, I think more people would make better choices because at the moment it's just too overwhelming. I mean, we we get, I, I'm certainly told often in conversations with people, I haven't got time to think about that. Ethical shopping is just too hard. Um, I need this particular thing. I'm going to go with someone that I trust. And then the other one, of course, is I can't afford to buy ethical because for people it's it's financial, it's it's mental. You know, they they there's a perception that shopping eth- ethically is going to be more expensive, which is not necessarily true. But also shopping ethically means buying less. So that's completely um, not the same uh, problem at all. But the second one is that it's just too hard. They, they want to go along with a current culture of being able to go where they know and buy the things that they want, which I completely understand. But I think the point that you're making is that we don't always need to even buy those things. We're, we're, we're being we're being pushed at even before we've made the decision that we need we need something so we're being told we need something that effectively we don't need so I think there's a huge amount to learn from what you've said Sean and um, I think it's a really good place to end it because I think people have got uh, a really good idea of steps they can take they can start analyzing the information that's being thrown at them and be sure that they're back in control of their own destiny and their own their own money but also if they do start spotting some of these things they know what to do to point it out so that hopefully in the longer term the situation will change for all of us and we won't have such an assault on our senses every time we I don't know turn on the tv or open up our laptop or go down the shop so um, I'd like to say a really big thank you for spending the time with me it's been um, an education for me and I've known you for years and there's still a whole lot of stuff coming out of here that I didn't know so that's great and I I love the idea of the seven sins of greenwashing Um, is there anything else you'd like to say any exciting things coming along you'd like to tell us about before we go so if you are into all of this stuff and you've enjoyed it I am writing a book about it at the moment which really digs into the seven sins it digs into all of these manipulative techniques and it's very action focused about what we can do um, beyond just purchasing to kind of push back and make change. Um, It's not going to be out until next spring and it doesn't have a title yet. So I can't tell you too much about it. Great marketing from me. Um, But the best way to find out more about my work and the things I do and when that book comes out is to visit ethicalhour.co.uk where you can join my mailing list and find out more. 
Um, and we do have a community full of what we like to call big Y business founders. So Not big wide. Big Y. It did, uh, it did correct me. And um, what was it? I was transcribing it the other day and it thought that I said big wide. That's a different thing. Uh, big Y business founders who are putting people and planet first. So if that is you, then please do come and join us. We've got um, an events calendar of industry events. We've got recommendations for podcasts and resources like this one. And we've got loads of training and support. And Joe has been one of our guest experts in there as well. Um, mm-hmm. teaching uh, about the SDGs in your business and you're coming back in the summer aren't you Jerry to do yep. a session on wholesaling so that's going to be really good. Yep. Well, thank you yeah, no I've been part of ethical hour since it started so um, I'm a I'm a very big keen ethical hour a big wide keen, <laughs> big <laughs> ethical wide hour keen. business person <laughs> so thank you so much for spending the time with us uh, Sean if anybody's enjoyed this and they want to find out more there's going to be more episodes coming every fortnight there's an uh, uh, already episodes on the podcast you can find us on apple google and podbean it's the where does it come from podcast hosted by joe salter and thank you so much to sean conway wood for coming along today thank Thanks, you and joe. goodbye <laughs>